All right. Now we're going to uh, stand for the reading of God's word. And our, our text this morning is from Daniel chapter 3. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura. He then summoned all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image. So all the provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, as soon as you hear the sound of all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold. Whoever does not will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold. At this time, some astrologers denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown in, we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. They were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach. And these three men fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is God's word. You may be seated. God, as we come before you this morning, 
We praise you for your mighty power. We praise you for your word. We pray that you would speak to and through Pastor Kyle through this time. Your Holy Spirit would fill this place. God, we thank you that you do amazing things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we go through um, the book of Daniel, you'll recall um, we're trying to teach through all 12 chapters of the book of Daniel in 12 weeks. So a sermon, a chapter. And because of that, um, we are having our text basically be um, most of the chapter. That's why they're longer. And the, the, um, the ones reading our, our text have their work cut out for them <laughs> because of the length. And, um, but the, the idea, the purpose of that is to get everyone to understand the flow of the story and to understand what's really going on. Um, and hopefully it's serving you well to that end. Uh, I wanted to remind you all, too, actually, that next week begins next Sunday. It's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I hope that you have some wonderful plans um, with your family and friends and that the Lord is encouraging and blessing your heart. Um, and Oh, and by the way, I have like nine things that are coming to my mind right now. Um, if, you did, if you did sign up to help distribute Thanksgiving baskets to those in need, um, I, you, I sent an email out. Well, I still don't know what time we're meeting today because I don't have the baskets yet. Probably be in the afternoon, so just wait to hear from me. I'll text or call people to let them know what time to meet us at the church to get your baskets, okay? And I'll have names and addresses for you then as well. But, ex but the point of this is uh, next Sunday is our first Sunday of Advent. It's, it's really snuck up, snuck up on us, hasn't it? Um, Christmas is coming. The goose is getting fat. Um, so so we're, we'll, we're really excited about that. At the front door, I think I even forgot to mention this to Dave and Donna. Um, Dave and Donna, where are you? There they are. He's right there. They, they, greet, you, they greet you at the front door. But there are postcards um, in the back for our Advent series. And um, I hope that on your way out, Dave, Dave, what Dave's going to do is he's going to give you a few to invite family and friends to it. And, and the one in particular that we're really hoping people will, will attend is the, the fourth Sunday of Advent, which is December 19th. It's going to be a candlelight uh, service. Our kids are going to do a Christmas presentation that Sunday. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope that you can invite family and friends and come that Sunday yourself with them. Um, and we'll have, a, of course, a special gospel presentation for that week. And also, because next Sunday is Advent, this series will be put on pause until Advent is over, um, just uh, for your information, okay? But we're really excited about the coming holiday season and be praying that God would draw people to himself to come to believe in and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's what we'll be praying for. There's a lot going on, Thanksgiving baskets, Christmas things. Um, the police event is coming up. So be praying. I know not everyone is involved in every single thing, um, but you can at least pray, can't you? Um, so pray for these things that God would draw all men to himself. Um, yes, so uh, next week's going to be a fun week. We're decorating. There's going to be some lunch. It's also Advent, um, and... I hope that you can pick up some cards on your way out to and begin praying for and inviting some people to come to that. This, this passage in, in Daniel um, is probably one of my favorite, favorite passages in the whole Bible. Um, it's wonderful. <laughs> I, I hope that you can go home and reread it again and again and just meditate on this passage. Um, it's a passage, actually, if you recall, if any of you were at Tracy and Hosea's wedding that I preached from. Um, 
I love this passage. One of the most troubling parts, though, I think, about faith, about the faith life, gets, I think, unearthed in this passage, living the life of faith and trust in Christ. It's found in, in one little phrase in our text that oftentimes just the experiences of life we get hung up on. We don't like this phrase. If you recall, in chapter 2, do you remember God appears, this is just the chapter before, God appears to Daniel in a dream and basically outlines to him his will and purpose for, for Nebuchadnezzar's life, for his life, and not only for that, but for the whole world. In a very vivid, descriptive explanation, <clears throat> he's, um, he, God told Daniel his purpose and will very explicitly in a way that Daniel could see and hear. So in other words, God's will for his life was revealed to him supernaturally. It's unquestionable what God wanted him to do. It's sort of like Moses, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he heard a sound, um, a voice from heaven crying out, Moses, go and set, let my people go. Go into Egypt, right? Um, my people are suffering. You are to let them go. So it's very clear there's no arguing or debating about what does God want me to do with my life and should I go left or right. We get a he gets a voice from heaven. He's told explicitly. <clears throat> but most of the time, God's people are not given such a detailed description of when we are to turn left or when we are to turn right. Isn't that true? Should I take this new job or not? Should I marry this person or not? We don't get, we don't all of a sudden see a bush that's on fire but not consumed and hear God's voice from heaven. So what are we to do? And this is what we see in the lives of Daniel's three friends. In their own words, they say this. God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, <laughs> what's that? God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, See, to me, that just messes with my head. Which is it? <laughs> Will he or won't he? So they describe in their own words <clears throat> what is oftentimes the, the quandary of the Christian life. God will deliver you, but maybe he won't. <laughs> For these three, th this is what I think is the principle. For these three... It was more important to do the right thing and to trust God with the outcome. The right thing is what God wanted them to do. The outcome was up to him. The more important thing was for them to do the right thing and to lay their lives in the faithful care of their faithful creator. Their uncertainty of the outcome was not a lack of faith. And that's very, very important. Not knowing what was going to happen didn't mean, didn't equate to that they didn't trust God enough. And sometimes when we read verses in the Bible that have to do, you know, ask God but believe, we think that that means, God, I want this woman to marry. And I got it, like, that's it. She, I just asked God. He's going to, believing means that it's going to happen. That's not what scripture means, I think. Believing means that you trust him to do what is best for your life, right? That you're not afraid of a no answer because it's more important to you, to you to follow him faithfully. So their uncertainty of the outcome was not a lack of faith. 
One thing that you're going to notice in the book of Daniel as we continue on over the coming weeks <clears throat> is that there's sort of like these repeated scenarios in each chapter. Um, there's, there's a vision that one of the kings have, and Daniel comes in to help the guy out and interpret it and predict what, you know, what, what was the dream and what does it mean. And then the next chapter, their neck's in the noose. They're in trouble, right? The, the king's mad. He's, he woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and they got to trust God. So they're in this kind of like life-threatening scenario. Then the next chapter, you're back to the same thing again, this dream that they got to interpret. And then again, a life-threatening scenario. It's just kind of like, you know, like a bo you're boomeranged back to the same sorts of principles. And for some people, this seems a little bit tedious, maybe perhaps boring. <laughs> but friends... I think that this is intentional. I think that this is on purpose because this is descriptive of the Christian life. We are under threat frequently. And then God delivers us and uses us to move mountains. And then again, we have another threat, another conflict. If the repeated theme of persecution in Daniel seems tedious, you're going to note as followers of Jesus Christ that the, th that the repeated theme of persecution in your life is going to be tedious, too. <laughs> victory to valley to victory to valley. So the instruction that we find as we continue to read God's word in this particular book is that we must watch and pray and persevere. Or eventually, the dogged persistence of our enemy, the prince of darkness, is going to knock us out of the race. So this morning, I want to continue our study in Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to look at, in, in the text, a few things. The threat, the response, and the miracle. Oh, and I love this. I'm so excited. I want to preach the sermon every week for the next, like, ten weeks, but you might get bored with that. Um, I just love this passage in Daniel chapter 3. So let's look at these. <clears throat> let's first look at the threat. What's the conflict? What, what is happening that is sort of threatening the lives of these three Hebrew boys, in particular Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? In chapter 1, if you recall, the, the conflict, the threat concerned defilement. So the Jews were brought to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel and his three friends in particular, because of their particular skills and giftings, were brought into the royal court, and they were treated basically like royalty. And Daniel refused to be treated like royalty when the rest of his countrymen were in slavery. So he chose not to defile himself with the king's delicacies and comforts, if you recall. But here in chapter 3, the threat comes in the form of a golden statue. Now, if you remember from last week, Nebuchadnezzar's dream involved the statue, did it not? And two seconds later, he's forgotten what he learned. <laughs> he just had a dream in chapter 2 about this huge statue of which he was the head of gold, you remember? And every, everything below it were these other nations that were made of different materials that would ultimately displace his power and that finally it would come to an end with this great rock came out of the sky, smashed the whole thing to smithereens, the mountain filled the whole earth, right? And the point was that the God of gods, the king of kings, Daniel's God, is going to eventually take back this earth um, because it belongs to him. All kings are put there by him, and they'll be removed by him. And we serve the greater king. And at the end of this, Nebuchadnezzar is like, wow, this is cool, man. Great. Praise be to Daniel's God. Now, in chapter 3... What happened? 
Because at the end of chapter 2, he seems to be submitting to the reality that the God of Daniel, the God of heaven, has authority over him, and he seems sort of okay with this. But now he's erecting a statue entirely made of gold. Now, he's not just the head of gold. He's the whole statue. And what is this sort of implying here? No country is going to remove me from my throne. No rock is going to smash me and remove me. I'm the enduring king. Somehow he got even more arrogant and more proud than he was before. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 had a religious experience without true conversion. And friends, that is so common in the lives of people in our world. They're going through something, they have a problem, they come to accept, it seems that they come to accept something true about God, but then a month later, six months later, they become even more hardened to him and more resistant to his will than they were before. First Thessalonians chapter 1, 9, he did not turn from idols to serve the one and true God. Chances are he was sort of thinking about that statement in chapter 2, after you, Nebuchadnezzar, will arise another kingdom. What? Let's think this through. That means I'm going to die. That means I'm not the king. Oh, king, live forever. We hear that sometimes in Daniel, said to Nebuchadnezzar by his cronies. Oh, king, may you live forever. What? Kings don't live forever. They know that. They're flattering him. But now they, he's, he's settling into this reality that this vision is telling him that his days are numbered. So he says, I'm going to flex my muscles <coughs> um, and create this enormous statue made, made entirely of gold. And maybe perhaps I can intimidate the one who made my muscles. How foolish. How foolish we must look to our creator when we think and we decide to rebel against him, to resist his will, and to do things our own way. You know that this statue, it's, it, you kind of lose this in the reading because we don't, what the heck is a cubit? I don't know. A cubit is basically 10 feet, about that. So this thing's 90 feet um, tall. This is incredible. Think about this. 90 feet tall is basically about nine stories or 10 stories high. The thing is only nine feet wide. So this is almost like a pole. This is a feat of construction, of engineering prowess. And it's not surprising that it's coming from back. It must have had this enormous base to hold it up, right? So th this, is, this is a work of art that he makes. And it is extremely valuable because it was either, either made of solid gold or covered in gold. What, what a, an amazing sight it must have been to see this thing towering over all the other buildings in Babylon, and it's made of gold. But it's not simply a, just a display of, hey, look what we did. Look how rich we are. Look how smart we are that we can make such an edifice. Because the whole story smacks of worship, right? It's not just, oh, wow, look what we did. This is cool. He's saying you need to bow down and worship this thing. And it's, in, it's, accompanied, it's accompanied by a choir of music. Um, some of the things that I didn't include in our reading, but I, it just said when you hear the sound of music, he's not talking about Julie Andrews. <laughs> because what I didn't include was all the different instruments that, he's, that, that Nebuchadnezzar is supposed to be using. The lyre, the flute, the pipes, all these different things, all at once are so, suddenly supposed to erupt into this choir of, of praise, not to God, not to the Lord, but to Nebuchadnezzar himself. 
Imagine the hubris, the arrogance of this. So when you hear the music, you need to bow down and you need to worship the... Imagine if I just came in here one day and said that to you. Hey, guys, I made the statue of me, and um, you need to bow down and worship it, or I'm going to cut all your heads off. First of all, like, we'd never get away with that. But, you know, imagine now I'm not just me. I'm the king. Like, I actually have the authority to do this. No one's going to question it. You bow down to worship this thing or you're dead. <laughs> My goodness. You know, you, know, you, you know, Neb, you can catch more bees with honey, right? <laughs> now, this has important significance, I think, in the church. Friends, we all need to ask ourselves as Christians, who have we covered in gold? Who have we erected a 90-foot statue to? Whose image are we impressed by most? Billy Graham? Is he covered in gold for you? R.C. Sproul? Right? Oh, maybe he's a little too reformed. So let's pick this one. Maybe Ravi Zacharias? Did you cover him in gold? How do you know if you've covered someone in gold? Well... Are you more excited to hear the preacher of the word than the word? Do you make your decisions on where you go to worship, on the, the charisma and leadership prowess of the person that's handling the word of God? Friends, who? Nebuchadnezzar covered himself in gold, but the church is so prone to cover its heroes in gold. So we cover Ravi Zacharias in gold. We cover Billy Graham in gold. You, maybe you covered your former pastor in gold. Are we more, so that's the test, right? Are we more excited to hear the preacher of the word than the word? Is it just as thrilling for you to go home and read the Gospel of John than to hear a certain particular man who's just so wonderful preach that word? Or maybe let's reverse it a little bit. Let's look at it negatively. How, how do we know who we might have covered in gold? Well, do we, have an, do we have a resentment, a bitterness because of the way maybe a past leader failed us? Are we sort of waiting because of that for someone to disappoint us again? Are we touchy and sensitive and jaded towards the church in general? Who have we covered in gold? Paul tells the Galatian church, he says, you know what he says? Um, that we are, we are to do to church leaders that, that reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, pronounce a curse on them. He, says, he doesn't say erect a statue of gold to them. And if it doesn't work out, become jaded and leave the church. He says, pronounce a curse on them, right? In other words, according to Paul, expect church leaders to do some pretty awful things. Expect it. And be ready for it. Worship Christ and exalt his gospel and not a man. Amen? Amen? We are not to be bitter and jaded and offended and retreat into the background, but we are to hold up Christ 
to hold up his glory and honor. Maybe the one purifying outcome of having Christian leaders fall is that maybe it will expose to us in our hearts and to the church that we have covered someone in gold and we have erected a 90-foot statue to them. No one's that tall, by the way. You know, my guess is that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't 90 feet tall. No one, by the way, is covered in gold. Right? Why, why do we do this to people? Why do we make them bigger than they are? Why do we make them more valuable than they are? You know who the only one who is 90 feet tall and covered in pure gold is? The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's more valuable than that, that's bigger than that. The only one, and we know this. See, friends, the threat, the threat <clears throat> to the three friends is simply this. It's misplaced worship. Loving the world and their own lives and the rescue of some person more than trusting in the redemption of their lovely Lord. But for these, and under this threat, Daniel's three friends didn't budge. Isn't that good news? They would not cover anyone or anything in gold, no matter what. So let's look at their response. In the book of Acts, Peter and the apostles are told by the authorities to stop proclaiming Christ. Remember this? Jesus is alive. He ascends to heaven. They start preaching Christ. The authorities come in and say, hey, stop it. You're going to prison. You remember their response? What is it? It is better to obey God than man. There's no, th this is the perfect biblical application of that statement. The reason Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not obey this command is because it is better to obey God than man. We want you to know, they say, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. <clears throat> oh, I love that statement. It's like the, the it, it comes to this, this headway, this point in time where you need to say the perfect thing. Right? You're, you're, you're being threatened and challenged. And if, if now, now's the time, if you're going to duck out, if you're going to be a coward, it's going to be here. Because they're caught. They, they're guilty. They didn't worship the statue. They're challenged about it. And they say this, We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You ever see that movie Gladiator? Right? There's, the, 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 there's this line in there that sort of reminds me of this, where, where the, the crazy, what's his name, the, the, the Caesar, um, he's, he's just sort of insane, and he meets, the, what's his name? Commodus. He, he meets uh, Maximus. Maximus is like this gladiator because he was arrested. And, he, and, he, and he's really a great warrior. And Commodus is impressed. And he goes down um, to say hello to him. And he takes his mask off. Remember this? And he realizes who it is. They're enemies, by the way. And, and all of a sudden, he calls his guards and they surround him. And, and Maximus looks at, looks at him and he says, The time for honoring yourself will soon come to an end. Oh, yes, perfect thing to say, right? Nothing would have been better than that thing. And this is exactly what's going on here. We want you to know your majesty. This guy's got all power. He's got all military. This is the, the biggest, most powerful nation on earth. 
We want you to know, King of Kings, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We won't do it. Kill us. Because it's better to obey God than man. Verse, verses 9 through 12 reveal to, to us what was the accusation made in the, to begin with. There are some Jews in verse 12 who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. They're ignoring you. They're disobeying you. They pay no regard to you. Chapter 3, if you, if you recall, in that reading, it just sort of begins with the construction of this enormous statue and the order to worship it. And the order is made, the music begins, the masses obey, everyone bows down to worship it. And really no mention is made at all of the Jews or of these three Hebrew boys. So this tells us something. They're not drawing attention to themselves. They're not pointing out to everyone around them how different they are from them or how much better they are, right? It was Nebuchadnezzar's advisors who just sort of noticed them not doing this, their passive resistance. And they have no, their advisors have no compassion at all for their lives, no pleading for mercy, no challenging this sort of cruel and barbaric order to worship this king or die. Even though, by the way, if you recall, in chapter 2, Daniel and, and his three friends saved all their lives. Remember that? And now they're trying, these same people are trying to kill him. Perhaps because they were jealous of their promotion. So they play into Nebuchadnezzar's own insecurity, and they say they don't pay any attention to you. They know exactly what to say to get him upset. So he erupts in anger. And in verse 15 it says, What God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Oh, the arrogance of this man. And we can note two aspects of the response of these three Hebrew boys to the threat. The first thing that we can note to their response is that they have complete confidence in God's power and goodwill. Verse 17, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. They have complete confidence in the power of God. They do not believe for a second that anyone has more power than their Lord. Friends, do you believe this? That nothing is more powerful than your Lord. Your boss isn't, your spouse isn't, your children isn't, your bank account isn't more powerful, your poverty isn't more powerful, your divorce isn't more powerful than the Lord. They believed not that God definitely would preserve their lives, but that he absolutely could if he chose to. Their lives were in his hands, not Nebuchadnezzar's. Oh, and when we get that in life, we, we build confidence and faith in every decision we make for him. Our lives are in his hands. Such are yours, friends. Your life isn't a sorry accident. The Lord has been with you. He has been leading you. He has been providing for you, for your good, and for his glory. They based their confidence on the promise of God. God would deliver them, maybe not now, but he definitely will later. They clung to the promise that the God who doesn't lie made a covenant to save them. You remember, we just, they remembered chapter 2. God promised this mountain's coming, and we're on it, brother. So have your fun for a little while. Take our lives, if you would. But we're returning with Jesus in Revelation 19. We're with him in robes of white. And the mountain's coming to fill the whole earth, and we're there. So go ahead, do your worst. Take our lives. 
They clung to the promise of God because they knew he doesn't lie and that he has all power. They, that God made a covenant with them to save them and to restore everything on this earth and that their one job in life was to believe him and to follow him. So Jesus, you remember, he proclaims this at, at the threat of crucifixion, speaking to the powers of darkness and Satan himself. He says, this is your hour in the power of darkness. You see, darkness has a time to make a mess of things, but it's just an hour. An hour isn't very long. An hour is long to a child. Right? Are we children? You see, when I go for a drive, and I say, oh, it's, 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 oh, I say it's only an hour. You know what my children say? An hour. We have to be in the car for an hour that's forever to them. You see, friends, this is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, your life is an hour. It's a vapor. And our job is not to control all the little outcomes of our life. It's to be faithful. It's to follow the Lord. The devil has come down to you in great wrath, knowing that he has but a short time. It's a little bit. He's got an hour. And he does a lot of damage in that hour. And it hurts, I know. But it's an hour. He's coming quickly. It's ending soon. Trust the Lord. These three friends knew that the clock was ticking and it was about to strike midnight and that the Lord's sword was in his hand and that fire was in his eyes. The Prince of Heaven is at the door. So do your best. Trust him, follow him, be faithful. So they are completely submissive to God's will. They're, they trust, they have a confidence in God's power, but they're submissive, number two, to God's will. In their, in the, in their response to this threat, they are, they are accepting whatever the outcome God decides. But even if he does not, in verse 18, we want you to know that we will not serve your God to worship the image of gold. They trusted God's will, even if his will was not their will. Does that make sense? Or did I just confuse you? They trusted God's will, even if his will was not their will. Because ultimately, what God is trying to do in the heart of every believer is to conform our hearts to his will. In other words, he wants our will to be his will. He wants the things that we want to be the things that he wants. Right? Their faith was not that God would provide them their preferences, but it was in the purpose of God and in the goodness of God so that God was allowed to do whatever he might in their lives. Though he slay me, Job says, yet will I trust him. Sinclair Ferguson writes, by faith, flames may be quenched. But in that same faith, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection, Hebrews chapter 11. Isn't that good? Faith is a willingness to follow God no matter what, not for him to do what we think he should do or what we want him to do. Sometimes, friends, the death of faithful servants does more good than miraculous deliverances. Let me give you an illustration of this. The young Scottish reformer, his name was Patrick Hamilton, was burned alive 
by the religious powers of his day because he was simply preaching that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Oh, the nerve. So they decide to burn him alive. After his torture and execution at the stake, it was said of him, the smell of his burning corpse blew over the town of St. Andrews in Scotland and infected as many people as it blew upon, and revival broke out. You see, friends, our earthly body is for an hour. And if the sacrifice of our earthly bodies will produce more heavenly bodies, a, a, a number, a vast number of people to come to know and love that Jesus is Lord, then it's worth it, isn't it? Light the match. The three friends responded to this threat in kind, and what followed for them in this instance was a wonderful miracle. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar heats up the furnace seven times hotter. So hot is it that the flames of the fire, quote, killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The sh in other words, the situation is dire. The ones escorting them to the fire are licked up by the flames and killed instantly. As the flames licked up these guards, the text tells us that bound with ropes, they fall into the furnace. It was their job to obey God. Now it's God's turn. What's he going to do? All seems to be lost. I can't imagine what might be going through their minds as they're falling into this flame. I imagine that perhaps, as we noted some weeks ago, that they were singing the song of the prophet Isaiah as they neared the furnace. And that as their skin was being warmed by the fire as it approached. I wonder what they were thinking as they saw the, the, the hands of the guards begin to ignite in flame as they pushed them in. What was their hymn? What was their song? What was their sound of music? Perhaps now as they sang it, louder than the masses, I think it was this song. When you pass through the waters in Isaiah 43, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, do not be afraid, for I am with you. You know that Isaiah is talking to those who are about to go into exile? That's the context of Isaiah. He's speaking to future Israelites that will be in slavery in Babylon. He's speaking to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isn't that beautiful? Do not be afraid. I will be with you. And he was, because we read in the text, one like the Son of God, was among them. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked, weren't there three? Oh, wait, what's going on? Weren't there three guys that we tied up and threw in? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the Son of the Gods. Friends, do you know who this is? you know who this likely is? Bible scholars have have, have suggested this for hundreds of years. They believe this to be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ. 
Do you know that Jesus is the eternal son of God? He's the one that created the universe. So Jesus, in a sense, has, is existing at the time. He exists as God. And he's revealing himself. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, shows up. He showed up to Joshua as he was entering the promised land. You remember this? And Joshua starts to worship him. And you know what it calls, um, you know what the, the, the angel of the Lord says, does? Nothing. He lets him worship him. And that's how we know this is actually God revealing himself because angels don't receive worship, right? The fourth man is likely the pre-incarnate Christ, the eternal son of God. With him, manifest, manifesting himself physically prior to him becoming a baby in a manger. Friends, it is likely that these three friends were being escorted through the flames by Christ himself. Wow, what? And you know, you know who is with you through the flames? Christ. He's with you because his spirit's in you. He says, I will be with you to the ends of the earth in Matthew 28. He's with you. He's in the fire with you. A question I think what might arise here that's similar to a question that we, we might have with, with Moses at the burning bush. How does fire not consume? How does fire not consume a bush? How does fire not consume flesh? You know that biblically God is depicted as, as a blazing fire. His presence is as a fire. So the, the repeated question throughout scripture is, how can we be in the presence of God and not be consumed by that presence as sinners? How does his fire not burn us up? That's the same question that we all need to ask, friends, as we sit here this morning. How can we, sinners, be in the presence of God and not be consumed by the fire of his holiness and justice? And you know what the answer is? It's the same answer in our text. The fourth man. That's how. Not your good works. Not your church attendance. Not how much you pray. It's the fourth man. He's the one that insulates you from the wrath of God for sin, forgives you, and reconciles you with God. So, so the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Because Jesus went through the greater fire, the greater death. He went into the tomb for three days and emerged alive from the dead so that you could be emerged from that death too. The fourth man took on the greater furnace of death and emerged unsinged three days later. Friends, how can you enter into the fire of loneliness? How can you take on a life of singleness because you're not going to maybe marry someone who is, doesn't share your faith? How do, you, how do you take on the fire of singleness? How do you take on the fire of divorce, of weakness, of illness, of loneliness? How do you take on these fire? The, this, it's the same answer, the fourth man. He's the only way that you can be faithful, that you can get through it. Because I am with you, he says, I am with you. So it says in Romans chapter 8, who, is, who then is the one who condemns? No one, Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine? What fire, what furnace can separate you from his love? Oh, his furnace unbinds you from your shackles and frees you. Shall famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
We conquer through the fourth man. That's how we conquer. So that neither life or death or angels or demons or, or anything present or anything future nor any powers nor height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo! The abiding presence of Christ enables us as those martyred in Revelation tw chapter 12 to love not their own lives even unto death. To trust that Jesus delivers. Delivers from sin, from guilt, from persecution, from stress, from all of it. The fire won't consume you because it doesn't consume him. And if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. I want to close with a few, a few, a few thoughts, some reflections. <clears throat> it says this in our text. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out of the fire. Oh, isn't that good? You're coming out soon. They came out of the fire. You're in a fire right now. I know it's hard. And you're going to cry some tears, and we're going to cry them with you. But you're coming out soon. And you're coming out unharmed. The fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and they didn't even smell like smoke. <laughs> Anything. They didn't smell like You know, fire is not the only thing that can kill you in a fire. You know that most people, when they're in a burning house, they don't die because they were burned alive. They die from the smoke. They can't breathe. That didn't hurt them either. The smoke didn't even touch their nostrils. The smell of loneliness was gone. The aroma of guilt wasn't there. The scent of sin wasn't on them. Jesus will wipe every tear from your eye. And anything that could possibly harm you in this life is banished in the next. They emerged victorious. That's the message of Daniel. The rock unformed by human hands hurtling out of the sky is going to finish this mess and then a great mountain of the kingdom of God's love will rule. I hope that you're on that mountain, friends. Everything under heaven is part of the eternal plan and purpose of God. He's using even evil things to do good things. The evil intentions of our heart, the things that we do wrong, he doesn't make us do them but he uses them for his glory. And the promise of Hebrews chapter 4 is that God will give you grace in your time of need. <clears throat> so I want to ask you, friends, church, commit yourself to the flames. Don't run away from them. But in your committing yourself to the flames, anchor yourself to the fourth man, Jesus Christ. In one way or another, now or later, a miracle's going to happen, and he's going to deliver you. And you, Psalm chapter 15, will dwell on his holy hill. Let me just quote this, and then we'll be done. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 21, <clears throat> in verse 17. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and win life. Let's pray. 
oh God, that this message in Daniel chapter 3 would be on our hearts, that we wouldn't forget it, and that you would be our God and nothing else, that we wouldn't erect any statue of gold to anyone or anything, even when it means our life. God, thank you for the fourth man, for Christ, that he went through a greater furnace and emerged alive on the third day. Friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, he is Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, and he took the wages of your sin. He paid for them. He took on your death and your suffering, which is what was owed to us for our sin. But he loves us and loves you. Trust in him. Trust in the fourth man. And he'll bring you through. Cry out to God in the silence of your heart. God, save me. I'm a sinner. I'm being thrown into the furnace. And I'm guilty. Save me. I trust in the fourth man, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's you, friend, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. Follow him. You're, you're born again. You're alive. He's given you eyes to see. Follow him. God, for the rest of us, I pray, Lord, that we would continue to cling to the fourth man, to Jesus Christ, who is faithful. He's with us even to the ends of the earth. In his name we pray. Amen.